guilt is about what you did and shame is about who you are. And um, I was able to navigate that at some point, but it probably took a decade. Yeah, it was, it was hard. You know, so much of it is about how we live and how we behave and living in right thinking and right action and right intent. And, you know, these are Buddhist ideological tenets within the, the Eightfold Path, the eightfold and, path and all right. of that, you know. And I didn't know that at the time, really. I just knew that there was some kind of commonality. But I definitely needed a theology of looking forward, of transformation and of rebirth. Uh -huh. And I found that in, uh, in Christianity. That's Jeff Grant. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. This is my podcast. Welcome. Before we get into today's episode up front, I wanted to do something I do from time to time, which is read an email that I received uh, from a listener. This one's particularly powerful. Uh, I'm going to leave the author anonymous for reasons that I think will become obvious imminently, and it goes like this. Rich, you are such an inspiration. I've been listening to your show for about a year. I found you from a therapist after my fiance broke up with me and left me in a deep depression. To medicate myself, I turned to drugs and alcohol. I was suicidal and often held a gun to my head, wishing the pain would stop. You and your guests on your podcast are the reason I am living today. I am starting my journey into self-awareness and self-love finally. I cannot thank you enough for how you have impacted my life. Peace, love, and plants. So it's pretty crazy to get an email like that. And I just want to say, first off, my heart goes out to you. Uh, I feel your pain. I sympathize and empathize with your situation. And I just, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, receiving messages like this, these words. Uh, certainly, I can't take credit for this person's recovery, but I am glad and, and proud to have played a small part in it. And part of the reason why I share these kinds of messages from time to time is really to remind me why I do this, because too many people are out there without a lifeline. Uh, not enough, get the help they need, slipping through the cracks. And as a society, I think it's incumbent upon us to do better in how we address addiction, provide recovery, and really support the millions of people out there who suffer in silence. It's also the why behind I wanted to share the story of this week's guest. Uh, it's a tale of drugs and alcohol precipitating an epic fall from grace, the suicide attempt that followed, and the hard-fought journey to put the pieces back together to heal, to find meaning and channel that experience in service for the betterment of others. And our servant for this exploration today is Reverend Jeff Grant. Jeff is a former New York attorney, who, like a lot of people, became addicted to painkillers, specifically Demerol in his case, 
in the wake of a ruptured Achilles that he suffered playing basketball, which is an all too common path, uh, I'm afraid to say. And like so many, Jeff's using started innocent enough, but it didn't take long before he started making bad decisions, terrible decisions, eventually, uh, under the influence, fueled by his dependency that led, let's call them ethical transgressions, uh, financial misdeeds, losing control of his law firm, and again, uh, the suicide attempt that followed. Jeff survives his suicide attempt, obviously. He ends up entering treatment, he gets sober, and begins the process of putting the pieces of his life back together again. But then, at about a year and a half into sobriety, uh, he ends up getting arrested for fraud, fraud that relates to some falsified loan documents that he executed while under the influence many years prior, shortly after uh, 9-11. He ends up pleading guilty to this crime and ultimately ends up serving 18 months in federal prison. There's a lot more to Jeff's story and this redemptive journey that he's been on ever since. And we're gonna get to that in a couple minutes as well as the why behind why I wanted to share Jeff's story on the podcast. But first, DK, you have experience with depression. You've had friends that have committed suicide or been addicted to opioids. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, man. I mean, depression is definitely something that I've dealt with for 15 to 20 years, been on a lot of different SSRIs and, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult. I think it's tough to get out of the ditch once you put yourself there and, you know, trying to figure out what the lifeline is and how do I change this? And that mixed with addiction, it's just, it's very difficult. Yeah. Well, it's an incredible story. And like I said, it's coming up in a couple few, but shall we take care of a little business first? Yeah, let's do it. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. 
There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, Jeff. So after his federal prison sentence, Jeff was faced with the prospect that every convicted felon faces, which is re-entry. And of course, he can't go back to his whole life. He is compelled to create this new one. And he goes on this search for meaning, looking for this spiritual lifeline to help make sense of what had happened to him, why it had happened and and where he should go from there. And he ends up entering the seminary, earning a master's of divinity from Union Theological Seminary in New York with a focus in Christian social ethics. And after graduating, he begins serving at an inner city church in Bridgeport, Connecticut as an associate minister and director of prison ministries. And it's really there that he begins to find his calling helping those who are emerging from jail and prison sentences, convicted felons, navigate the treacherous waters of civilian reentry. Today, he's an ordained minister with 16 plus years of continuous sobriety. He's the co-founder of Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry created to provide confidential support to individuals, families, and organizations with white collar incarceration issues. And so this is his story. It's a conversation about addiction, sobriety, the opioid epidemic, public shaming, redemption, the prison industrial complex. It's about spirituality. It's about divinity. But it's not only about the individual experience of being convicted of white-collar crime. It's just as much about what happens to the bystanding family members and the loved ones who become casualties in the crosshairs of the perpetrator's actions. 
But ultimately, this is about redemption. It's about moving forward in the face of one's misdeeds, making amends. It's about the search for grace and the path to service as a means of making sense of it all, giving back to those in need by sharing the experience and, and sharing the wisdom procured along the way. Like several of my guests, I met Jeff at the Nantucket Project last year. I was very impacted by his story and compelled to share it with all of you here today. So I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here's Jeff. All right, we're ready to go. Good. So just to illustrate the strange, magical, mystical ways that the universe works. <laughs> We've been going back and forth for a little while trying to schedule this podcast. We met in Nantucket. We did. In September mm -hmm. as part of the Nantucket Project. And, uh, and on the day of our appointed interview, actually the day before, I get a text from Tom Scott, the founder of the Nantucket Project, who also has happened to be on this podcast in the past. He said, I'm in town, I wanna meet, can we meet uh, on this day? <laughs> the same day that you're coming over here, you as somebody who's presented at Nantucket Project in yeah, the past. Yeah. Tomorrow, I have Nadia Bowles-Weber coming over to do the show, who's yeah. somebody I've been trying to schedule forever as well, yeah. who I met at Nantucket Project. Um, I don't know how that happens. How does the universe, it's convergence. In your, in your experience, <laughs> in all things uh, divine, how do you account for that and explain that? Uh, I'm not sure I'm, yeah. I have any better <laughs> insight than anyone yeah. else. But um, it was nice to see uh, Tom today. And, uh, and please say, say hello to Nadia for me too. I will. Yeah. yeah, what an amazing person she yeah. is. So I'm going back to back with uh, all of these people <laughs> who are uh, steeped in... Uh, in all things spiritual, in in matters uh, in matters divine. So it's cool to have you here today. Thank I've you. been looking forward to this conversation yeah. for a long time. You have an amazing story. So let's just start at the beginning. Mm. Paint the picture for me. Picture. Baller, baller, lawyer. Baller, lawyer. In New York. Super successful uh -huh. by you know normal standards in this country, I guess, and. Uh, Big staff and uh, real estate clients of uh, of note, and uh, working sixteen hours a day. And I was a normal kid, you know. I uh, I grew up with my share of. Did uh, you grow up in in like the suburbs of New York City? I did, yeah, you in did. Long Island. Uh -huh. You know, and I was a I was a normal kid there, partier. Uh huh. You know, and uh, tried to stop, didn't stop, tried to stop, and um, but made it through high school and college and law school and kind of ran that all up. Did you do the big law firm thing for a I while didn't. before you started your own? No, no, no. I was a always no. I, always going to be your own boss. Yeah. Well, I was a I was a marketer from way back. Uh -huh. I, I actually sold shoes on Madison Avenue to put myself through law oh, school. Wow. So definitely. So you uh, got you, you you know how to put the hustle on a little bit. Uh -huh. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know they they buy the shoes and you stick the shoe trees in and you upcharge them before they uh, they get to the register. I didn't oh, yeah. know that. Oh yeah. I'm already oh, yeah. learning things. Oh yeah. You make ten percent on the shoe trees, <laughs> okay. but only two percent on the shoes. So mm. you have to know that. Yeah. Yeah. So worked your way through law school, went mm -hmm. to law school in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And did you start your practice? I know that you ultimately you were up in like Mamaroneck, right? Where you had your practice, but did you start in Manhattan? Started in Manhattan and after about 10 years there, moved mm -hmm. it up to um, Westchester County. And uh, right away I was a big fish in a small pond, you know, yeah. as opposed to being lost in Manhattan. 
But like a transactional lawyer, right? Real estate deals? Mostly real estate mm-hmm. deals and, uh, and business deals. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of found myself up there. Um, uh, th- there were a lot of lifestyle changes I needed, needed to happen and I was flirting with them. And um, at that point I'd been sober probably about five years. But on your own? I, on my own. Mm-hmm. And I was in therapy, mm-hmm. but I wasn't committed to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what it just meant. Just like I, sh- I should probably dial back the partying, maybe stop drinking. Was it just was it alcohol or was it was it something else at that point? It was something else. It, it was, was everything actually. Yeah. It was pretty much everything. Uh-huh. What's and, your favorite? Well, if Ludes were still around, I'm not sure I'd be <laughs> sober today. Yeah, <laughs> those went the way of the dodo, unfortunately. Oh yeah, you know. So every- that was your main thing. Well, it was for that. Until you couldn't find them anymore? Well, that, that decade. Okay. Yeah, kind uh-huh. of like rolled through by decade. Uh-huh. So what is this like early 90s? What are we talking about? Um, in, uh, I moved up to uh, Maranek in 91 mm-hmm. and opened my practice up there. And um, my biggest client was a big real estate client. I had uh, tens of thousands of units and I was their general counsel. And then um, the head of his... Um, uh, one of the divisions asked me if I wanted to go across the street and play basketball in the elementary school that was kind of across from the headquarters. Right. And um, top of the key, crossover move, uh, ruptured my Achilles tendon, went right down and uh, called an orthopedist friend of mine and said, uh, you're not touching me unless you give me a prescription for Demerol. Uh-huh. And I hadn't, done, I hadn't done anything in almost five years, but it was instantaneous. And my my head went right to that, to Demerol, right not to Demerol. Vicodin, not morphine, not mm. like why Dem- had you done Demerol before? Probably, yeah. I like how you're the one who's prescribing the pain medication to yourself. Oh yeah, making the demand. Oh yeah, I the made doctor. the demand. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, so they did the surgery, and I had the, I had a drip because I had a, some complications, and I had a drip, and so the drip is going with the morphine, and I had uh, hidden the vial of Demerol under the bed sheets mm-hmm. and they didn't know about it. And I was, I was high yeah. and um, that's it. I was, I was back on the horse, man. And that was, uh, that lasted 10 years. I didn't realize that you had taken a stab at getting sober prior to yeah. the Achilles incident. Yeah. But without AA 12 step or anything like that, just mm-hmm. kind of like your own therapy, white knuckle, do it yourself version. Well, I went to a therapist in the uh-huh. city who was very helpful um, didn't lead me to AA or to uh, psychiatry at that point, but he was. I learned a lot from him, and yeah. and I stayed clean for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would always be clean. Yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I had no idea how. But then this injury—it's the perfect opportunity. The perfect opportunity. No one's gonna say anything. Oh yeah, it was a lawyer. You know, you know you can get what you need. It was a lawyer's dream, you know. Except uh-huh. I was the one who went down. Right. And walk me through uh, how. You know that initial fix with Demerol ends up snowballing into basically a full time habit. Well, I had friends who were um, doctors, and uh, you know, I was a, it was a kind of a professional club, and um, none of them probably knew at first that they were contributing to something that was more dangerous. Although every one of them kind of said the same thing to me, you know, just be careful, or and I guess they didn't want me to uh, to stop breathing on their watch. Yeah. But meanwhile, still writing the script. Um, every two or three Did days. Did you have to 
I mean, I've, I've heard crazy stories from lots of friends of mine who, you know, have navigated the, <laughs> this world <laughs> yeah. and the links to which they would go. Like I have doctor friends, you yeah. know, who get hooked on fentanyl and things like that. And like, they just tell the most elaborate stories about how they're able to, whether they're stealing script pads or, you know, even doctors who are falsifying their own yeah. scripts and yeah. how they would rotate which pharmacies they would go to. And they knew the shifts of who's gonna be behind the counter at a certain time, like all this shenanigans to make sure that they would be able to cop. There was a little bit of that, uh -huh. but mostly they, they just wanted free legal work. Right, and so, so, so that, that oh, was- so, Yeah, see. there was quid uh -huh. pro quo there mm, for sure. Wow. You know, and- um, and, and the other thing I found out is that um, I possessed all their secrets. I was all their lawyer. I was their lawyer. Uh -huh. So, you know, they, they, they had a vested interest in keeping me happy. Right. Well, that's a very interesting devil's bargain. Well, I didn't know that. I, I didn't even realize how manipulative I was being. Uh -huh. You know, I, I wasn't interested. In, I, I just wanted the drugs. Right. I didn't really understand any of that at the time. And was it always Demerol or did that morph mm. into Oxy and other things? Well, after six or seven years or so, um, and um, it, uh, the, the change was pretty imperceptible from a day-to-day -day basis, you know? It was, it was hard to be able to, uh, there's no way I could have figured it out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you had looked at me kind of in a, a, a cut of time of two years or three years, you would have seen massive changes of, uh, of personality and of, of weight. And I I'd blown up to 285 pounds at one point. Wow. And, and, you know, just kind of like the, the pores open of someone who is continually going through withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and then, like and then not. Sort of that clammy pallor. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't even, I, 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 I look like Luca Brazzi. That's <laughs> right? what I look yeah, like yeah. actually, you know. Well, the other interesting thing, and I think it's important to point this out, just to be completely, you know, kind of intellectually honest about the whole thing is that in the first phase of this, your, your law practice blossoms, right? Because you become kind of this um, unqualified id, like you're able to aggressively pursue these deals without fear. Like it kind of masks all of these things yeah. that hold us back in certain respects. And I think, you know, that's what initially hooks the drug addict in because it works for a while until yeah. it stops working. Well, it was a disinhibitor for, for yeah. sure. And I was willing to take on a lot of risk. And, um, and so things were flying. I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was go, go, go. And it was the run up to the dot-com boom. And mm -hmm. some of my clients were um, offering me pre uh, pieces of their companies in exchange for legal services and, you know, other kind of seichel I had, you know. Uh -huh. and, um, and, and then uh, at some point I stopped being able to show up. Yeah, and uh, it was getting it was getting pretty tense, and I had a client who uh, had hurt himself, and uh, badly, and maybe uh, he had neck surgery, and it was it was ugly, and he walked into my office one day, and you know he suspected what was going on with me a little bit, and he just dumped a handful of oxycontin on my uh, on my desk, and uh, he had a limitless supply, and because he could back then. And um, that was it. I mean, there was a tipping point where there was no, there was no return from, no way. Wow, so that guy was like the ultimate enabler. He knew, he knew you were doing this and he knew he, that you had a problem and he's like, here's your unlimited supply. Uh, well, he, he, he wanted a friend. 
uh-huh. you know, he wanted someone. There was no question, you know, and uh, and for days I, you know, I didn't go to work. I sat in his den and we watched the Golf Channel, and right. and and just zoomed out. You know, it was it was. Uh-huh. So know, no one's showing up to work. Well, I wasn't showing up yeah. to work. The people who worked for me, I'm, they were concerned, uh-huh. but I didn't understand that. And 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 I and what I've learned since how how much. Um, undiagnosed uh, bipolar disorder, you know, th- that I had back then and, and how I was really self-medicating. And, uh, and it had been bad my whole life. I just didn't really know because I had been uh, medicated in mm. one way or another mm-hmm. throughout. Just in your own way through partying, trying to- Yeah, trying to quiet my mind, this. yeah. Mostly manic. Have you had, so you've had manic episodes? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. And what does that feel like? Um, feels great. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what the, pro- that's that's what the problem. Yeah. yeah. That's why people that have bipolar don't want to be medicated, right? Yeah. I mean, I've always, since I was diagnosed and, uh, and that, that had certainly was uh, concurrent with my fall, um, I've been um, hypervigilant, but um, I, I would go through phases kind of where I was semi-normal mm-hmm. and then I would get super smart and be able to solve, see connections other people couldn't see and solve all kinds of problems and then slide into megalomania. Uh-huh. And so I would have a doctor, for example, client who wanted uh, a way to put his business together. And then in the same conversation, 10 minutes later, I'm talking to him about opening up 10 offices instead of one. Yeah. And he would look at me like, I'm crazy. Like, you know, we're having enough problem with, with one, you know, like, what's this about? And then uh, inevitably the 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 crash would happen, yeah. and I'd fall into depression. It's almost like cocaine talk. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Very much. Is it the most the most accurate representation that I've ever seen in media, like in narrative media, is is the character in Homeland? Did you watch that? Oh yeah. Show? yeah oh yeah. Because her episodes seem to be, from what I understand of the disease, to be the most kind of naturalistic and realistic compared to what it's actually like. When I saw some of her manic episodes and it refreshed my my recollection uh-huh. of some of the things I did and people around people around me knew. I mean I had Of course. Yeah, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I I'm not, my my staff would line up at my office door and and which would be closed and my my assistant was outside and they would be checking in with her like where I was on the on the sign on curve the sign. <laughs> on the sign curve and <laughs> uh-huh. and and if I was in a you know if I was being smart or I was being crazy right. and and you know they they knew but I I didn't uh-huh. uh, yeah well we have a chalkboard here if you want to start <laughs> writing equations down and pinning out pictures <laughs> yeah I mean does it does it work like that where you're you're up all night like brainstorming solving the universe's problems. It did. Yeah, it did. No, not 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 anymore. I mean, yeah. but it took a lot of years of uh, of uh, medication trials and things like that to, uh-huh. f- to figure it out. But yeah. what's it like when you pour Demerol or OxyContin on top of that? What does that mixture translate into? Well, I mean, that you know that was pretty soporific. You know, so that that kind of brought me down out of my mania uh-huh. for the most part. But you know the the Bouncing up and down was was the worst thing that could possibly happen. Yeah, as was the stress of being in that kind of a law firm too. So I, I didn't know. But and what's going on at home with your wife? I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, she claims that, she, you know, my, this is my ex-wife. She, you know, she claims that uh, she didn't know. And I, I believe her because I was just this big gregarious, you know, uh, um, personality, you know, backslapping personality. And, uh, and people, you know, uh, made a lot of, um, uh, you know, because the money was there and the personality was uh -huh. there, people made a lot of, uh, cut me a, lot, a big wide swath, but I'm sure behind my right. back. Jeff will take care of it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I was a, He's I was, the guy. Back then, a I was a fixer, mm -hmm. but um, I'm not sure that that's a good term anymore. <laughs> but back then- <laughs> Like I, in the Michael Clay Clayton Michael Clayton fixer, not the Michael Cohen fixer. Yeah, right, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. Yeah. But you know, Michael Clayton, I mean, he's, you know, hitting the poker games and doing a lot of kind of underground stuff too. Yeah. Is that part of your lifestyle also? Well, you know, I, I might've thought I was like George yeah. Clooney, but probably not really. <laughs> <laughs> right. Probably not really. Um, so the wheels are progressively falling off the wagon, mm -hmm. um, but really the the life changer is a couple lines that you crossed. Yeah. You can't really ever take back. No, no. So walk me up to those points. Well, I mean, the firm started to decay and I didn't really know it. And the day came when um, we ran out of cash and it wasn't a large amount really. And uh, there's a lot of things I could have done with a phone call, but instead I told my office manager to um, move some money out of the client escrow account and into the operating account. And she looked at me like I was crazy. I mean, I remember the conversation, you know, like, is this, you sure this is something you want to do? And um, I said, yeah, um, do it. And, you know, it was just- A couple clicks on the, the keyboard. Screen was open and problem solved for the day. And right. I had no idea that that was the beginning of the end. Yeah. Yeah, no idea. But on some, you knew it was a no-no. Oh yeah, you, yeah. You knew. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, but you know, so were, so were the drugs. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, it was just, part of that pathology was just playing out. The decision-making uh, yeah, yeah. uh, is not so good at this point. No, I, I was, I, was you know, I, I can't blame it on anything other than, I don't blame it on the drugs, you know, but I uh, certainly, uh, um, I wasn't fully aware of what the consequences were going to be so life-altering and, and so permanent. Well, part and parcel of being an addict is, uh, an inability to ask for help, right? Oh, so yeah. you trying to solve this problem, like let's just, I'd rather break the law and violate, you know, <laughs> every ethic uh, that has to do with being a, a lawyer than raise my hand and say, hey, look, I have a problem here. Like I can't meet payroll, can somebody help me out? That oh, would yeah. be to admit weakness. And that's for whatever reason, very difficult for somebody who's in the throes of addiction. Yeah, well, I also, I wasn't gonna get caught. I mean, there was, you know, this was something right. private so and the ego small. Also. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, You're for sure. You're gonna be able to manage this. Oh yeah, and and I can, I'll put it back tomorrow, mm -hmm. which I did. And then the day after tomorrow came and I did it again and it became a uh, a, a wallet It became for our, for our firm. Right, once you do it once, then it becomes easy to do it again. Yeah, there's again, no question, again. yeah. And where does this all catch up to you? Um, started to, there was an investigation that started through the uh, ethics committee, the grievance committee and uh, over something small. 
And uh, I had to hire ethics lawyers and I was being uh, investigated and, and there were a lot of interviews and, um, and I thought I was doing well. I mean, I thought that maybe I was going to slide through it um, because I'm sure that was denial, but I, at no point did I think that my career was over uh-huh. and I was taking in new clients and, and then 9-11 happened and um, I just felt everything fall out from under me. Just there was like every sense of safety or structure or just went in that moment. And um, I, I became a madman and um, clients started, uh, just clients started to uh, shrivel up. And within a couple of months, there was a, there were ads on the radio and on TV for uh, businesses that businesses that had been adversely affected by 9-11. And in truth, I didn't know if it was the drugs or 9-11 or what, but I was sitting there with a shattered firm. And um, I called up uh, the SBA, Small Business Administration, that was um, 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 advertising for uh, um, businesses to get in touch with them. And I, I asked them, I told them my story, and they told me I would qualify. And um, they sent me a, an application and I filled it out and um, I just couldn't help myself but to embellish that application and uh, claim I had an office that was uh, a block away from ground zero. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't need to do it. So you, <laughs> you write up this application that you have a Manhattan office right exactly. down in the Wall Street area. Exactly. Actually, in Trump's right. building at 40 Wall oh, Street. Oh, you were that specific? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, no, you had to be specific. Uh-huh. And in truth— And so easily verified. But in, right? truth, in truth, I had a conference room relationship with a law firm there. Uh-huh. And so that address was on my letterhead. Oh, I see. So, it okay. so it, there it, is, I see. Uh, okay. All right. But, uh-huh. but there was no economic And you were effect. never really going there. Right. I'd never been there actually. Uh-huh. And there was, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was uh-huh. no economic effect of having lost that office on my, on me or my firm. And, and, um, and, and I, I, I embellished that I actually had. Right. So you get this loan, it's like 200 grand. Yeah, $247,000, yeah. which alleviates your need to dip into the client trust account, I for, would imagine. That's also drying up because the clients are running for the hills because you're a lunatic. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and your staff is down to a skeleton crew at this point? Well, or? at some point, I, I, I figured out that this was not going in a good direction. Uh-huh. And um, I, uh, I made arrangements for all my staff and all my files and everything to to go to another law firm. And so for the last three or four months before, before I, uh, I hit my bottom, um, I was pretty much alone in that office. Uh-huh. What's interesting is you hit your bottom and you get, you get sober um, before the chickens come home to roost well on, before. on the loan thing. Right. Well, so, what what precipitates your bottom? Well, what happened was uh, I, um, a, a business associate of mine that I had treated badly in the couple of years before, um, he wound up um, pre- uh, preparing an affidavit or a letter, a lengthy one, detailing everything I had done wrong, I had done to him, including my uh, my pre- opioid abuse and things like that, and all kinds of other things, and. Uh, my uh, ethics attorney became aware of it, sent me a copy, and I read it. 
and I called him up and I said, is, is this it? I mean, are we done? And he said, yeah, you're pretty much done. There's, uh-huh. there's nothing we, we can do from here. So I said to done him- Done in terms of being disbarred. To, yeah, exactly. Trying to defend my law license. Yeah. So um, I said to him, um, all right, why don't you just uh, um, resign my law license for me? And I went to my do- a doctor friend and I got a, a, a prescription of Demerol, you know, 40 tabs and went home. And uh, after my wife and uh, ex-wife and kids went to sleep, I, uh, I took the whole vial. It's like 40 tabs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, you know, I knew what I was doing. I mean, I was trying to kill myself. Was it, a, was it a real suicide attempt or was it a desperate call for help? I mean, 40 it, seems like enough, but your tolerance must have been insane. My tolerance was insane, but I don't think, I thought 40 would be enough. Uh-huh. That was the point. I thought 40 would be enough. And, and I've spent a lot of years trying to figure out whether or not it was a, a real attempt or, or a cry for help. But um, I wanted the noise in my head to stop. Mm-hmm. There was like no way. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, just what, you know, what the uh, what the price to pay? I didn't understand it. You know, I just knew that everything that I had and this 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 life and this house and the cars and the and the prestige and the, and at that point I was on the local school board and I owned uh, health clubs and I owned real and I owned real estate and yeah. I owned it was all you have like a restaurant too. I owned a restaurant. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was you know I was just one of those guys. Yeah, and I knew it was all gonna tumble down. It was going to tumble down anyway, yeah. you know, but, it, but, I, but I knew it was going to tumble down. So uh, I took it and- uh, It's and interesting that, that, I mean, I can see that it was a real attempt in the sense that you kind of calmly relinquished all of it. Like, you're like, just like, let go of my, you're like, you just let it all go okay. rather than fight it. Yeah. There was a, there's a giving up in that where it's like it's it's done I'm I'm it's done with me. It was actually the least dramatic part of the of those 10 years probably. It was just it was the feather on the on the scale mm-hmm. and it just landed and that was it. Just go yeah. do what I got to do and that was it. With addicts there's also there also tends to be a narcissism in these attempts. It's like now I'm going to you know I'm this is how I'm going to go out and people are going to say, "Oh, Poor Jeff, you know, like there's was part of that thinking. Oh well, I definitely was. I I definitely was, you know, wanted to know how many people were going to show up at my funeral. Right. You know that kind of thinking. Yeah. You know, but I had been thinking that for a long time. Uh I mean, there was, uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't know if I, I didn't know what if there was anything of myself left at that point. Did you have a conscious awareness of how you would? Been, be, been the architect of your own destruction no. or were you in a victim mentality of everyone's out to get you and you're just doing what you need to do to survive and why is this happening to me? It, 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 it wasn't like I had clarity at that point uh-huh. you know, because I, it, it wasn't like I was I was clear, clear and then took that vial of drugs. I was probably stoned already. Right. So it was a... Um, it was probably a victim mentality in there, sure. You know, like, uh, you know, everything was my parents' fault kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you not die after taking 40 Demerol? I, yeah, I think you hit it. I, I had a, uh-huh. a huge tolerance. 
But I woke up in the floor um, in, in the morning um, and I vomited all over myself. And, uh, you know, I didn't go kind of the Jimi Hendrix way. You woke up on your own or did your wife? No, no, I woke find, up on my own. Yeah. I, I was, it was pretty early. And, uh, and I knew where in the kitchen we had some, where we would have had some more um, things I could take. And I kind of crawled to the kitchen. I remember hoisting myself up to try to get it. And I realized I had taken them too. I mean, and, um, and um, so then there was the, um, there was a trip to the, you know, um, a, a couple of days later, I actually, I actually detoxed. I didn't go to the hospital. Um, but a, a few days later, um, I, um, I called uh, Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan and uh, I wanted to go there. I knew to go there because clients of mine who had OD'd went mm -hmm. there. That's where they went. So you made a decision like I'm done and, and you did your own self-styled detox at home. Well, I had done it a hundred, I had done it a yeah. hundred times before. So it wasn't as if I was ignorant of what a withdrawal would be like. This was just the super one. This was the mm -hmm. biggest one I'd ever been through. And certainly the first one I overtly tried to kill myself. Opiate withdrawal is gnarly. It was bad. It was bad. And- uh, How and, long did it go on for? I don't know, three or four days probably. Uh -huh. It was bad. So you waited until you'd weathered that before you checked yourself into treatment? Oh yeah, I, 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 you know, because I was, I, I knew better than anybody. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was. <laughs> you didn't want to. You didn't want to look like shit going to treatment. Oh no, no. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. oh, but you know what happens with people who uh -huh. have a lot of experience in these things. You become kind of like a mad professor of drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, Every, you know. I was like a. I had a, a Merck's manual and a uh, and a PDR there, and you know. So I, I knew my drugs. And but, were you doing it total cold, cold turkey or were you turning yourself out? Yeah. No, it was, uh -huh. no, that was the problem. Right. You know, I was, I was going through all the physical manifestations. It was bad, but then not. Uh -huh. And, uh, but I knew that that was it. And you did. So you had a sense that this, as somebody who's tried to get sober many times on your own, yeah. you know what it's like. It's like, okay, this time I'm never gonna do it again. But kind of in the back of your head, you're like, you're not really sold on the idea, but this was qualitatively different, you knew. Well, every other time it was two hours or uh -huh. two days later, I was back at it, but something was different here. This was, well, I didn't have a life to go back to. I knew that, you know, I knew everything was gone. I didn't, I didn't really understand at all at that point, the gift of a hard bottom, you know, that's something I learned later, but everything was gone uh -huh. and, um, and uh, so going to rehab going, was yeah. was a blessing. And you were in rehab for like seven weeks or something like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember I, I was about, first I had to go to the acute care unit where they put people who were dangerous to themselves or who could OD or, or, or could die from detox or whatever. And then um, five days later, I got moved to a step down facility and um, clear of all those uh, opiates I'd been taking, I started to have uh, amazing awarenesses of what I had done and all this victimization that, that I'd been uh, um, going through my whole life. Mm -hmm. and, and I started to see things, just the first little pieces of, 
of, uh, of clarity started coming through. Well, that could also provoke quite a bit of anxiety without your medication to buffer the impact of that truth landing on you like, wow, my whole life is decimated. Well, they had already started me on bipolar meds at that okay. point. I mean, they, they I'm, I got diagnosed pretty fast. Uh -huh. And so there was a whole different kind of haze I was in for a while. I was adjusting the to the Thorazine shuffle. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. One flew over the cuckoo's You know, I've nest, never told this know? before, but I, but I, um, um, I, I wandered into the creek at the rehab uh -huh. and they found me just walking through the creek in the water. And you know, like a like a guy in his bathrobe in the creek, right? That kind of image. Go get you know? Michael Clayton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He wandered off the reservation. <laughs> you know, so I had a <laughs> <laughs> in his bathrobe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 uh, a few weeks before I hit my bottom, of course, I had to go out and uh, and lease the a, a brand new BMW uh -huh. Seven Series. Of course. You know, of course, because you know I was that insane. So uh, I. Had, driven that car up to the rehab. So it's sitting there like as a, you know, as a testimony right. to my old life like and I could barely look at it. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so there's a whole story how I got rid of that car, which is amazing too. But, uh, but uh, I, I knew that I just couldn't go back there, that's for sure. Uh -huh. So how do you begin to piece your life back together in the aftermath of all of this? Well, certainly through, um, Recovery. I mean, you know, I, I uh, seven weeks in rehab, and they brought recovery meetings in, and uh, I kind of took to them, and um, um, more I think to the structure than to anything. I was I was too out of it to learn anything. I was gone, and uh, on the first day out of uh, rehab. I did what I was, I was told to do. I showed up at the meeting and I raised my hand and I said, I'm Jeff and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict and I need a temporary sponsor. Mm -hmm. And um, I gave, you know, like three seconds on, on um, my drug of choice or I can't remember right now, but um, at the end of the meeting, the, the leader who had been leading the meeting and I thought it was the, 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 the boss, you know, right. I, I didn't know, I was my first meeting. <laughs> I didn't know. Uh -huh. And he came up to me. And he said, um, you, you know, this is for alcoholics and you've done drugs and you're in the wrong meeting. And- How dare that guy say that? Yeah. I've never heard anybody say anything like that. Well, you're a West Coast guy. Yeah, that's and, interesting, wow. And this other guy came up to me who was standing right there and he was the spitting image of Freddie Mercury. I am telling you, uh -huh. this guy, I thought it was Freddie Mercury in my haze. And uh, he said to me, um, don't, don't mind that don't mind that guy, I'll be your temporary sponsor. And uh, Brian T was my, mm. my sponsor. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gave me very clear instructions, you know, like, you know, what to do. And for 30, 60 days, I went to a, a noon meeting every day and uh, I fell asleep and, uh, with my head against the wall because uh -huh. I couldn't even focus. But you showed up. I showed up. Took direction. Yep. Made yourself known. Yep. And, and then, began to take accountability. Did all that stuff that seems completely unrelated to staying sober. Like yeah, it was just people, take yeah. numbers, 
make coffee. Lie a lot. Lie a lot. Lie a lot. Keep coming back. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And um, but we had to get rid of the house, and we had a. And um, of course, I did what every. You have no income at this point. No income at this point, yeah. and um, a little, you know, some savings, but no income. And um, I did what every sane guy does um, when they lose their house and their career and their, uh, um, their reputation. I, I moved to Greenwich, the one of the wealthiest communities in yeah, the, in, in the country. Going, why would you do that? Um, because I had started going to AA meetings there, the recovery meetings there. And um, I, I, those meetings were so important to me that I had to be there. And also it was only six miles from our home. Mm-hmm. And although the the state line is is huge in terms of media and in terms of uh, interconnectivity, but my, I figured my kids would still be able to maintain relationships with their friends, mm-hmm. and that, that that was true. That that happened. Mm-hmm. But there we were in Greenwich, and for um, the next twenty months or so, um, I was living in an apartment in Greenwich and going to meetings. And I went three times a day, four times a day sometimes. And I was a lockstep, you know, in recovery. That's, mm-hmm. That was my life. Mm-hmm. And this saves your life. Saved my life. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting to me. I'm always encouraged when I hear stories like yours of, of people who, whose lives have been spared as a result of the 12 steps. Because in our fast-paced modern culture, it seems like every year there's some new hot take on what sobriety is yeah. or should be. Yeah. and now we know more about addiction and alcoholism than we ever have before. And all these other ideas are antiquated. Um, and you know, maybe there's truth in that, maybe there's not, but I know that 12 Step and Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. It saved, it saved the lives of so many people that I know. Yeah. Um, and it works. Yeah, I have no opinion on how people get sober yeah. if they find other ways of doing that, more yeah. power to them. I just know that this is what has worked for me and continues to work for me and may, and, and remains my number one priority. Well, it's a big world. And I assume there's people getting sober other ways. Yeah, of course. But for me, it, it worked. Mm-hmm. And it, it gave me a home, you know, family, uh, people who I, uh, weren't judging me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, I, I had abandoned all my people, places, and things because nobody would talk to me. I was a pariah. And uh, so I didn't have the places, I didn't have the things, and I didn't have the people. So that hard bottom was a blessing. Yeah, and it had to, you know, forced you to right size your ego and take stock and in inventory of how you were living and figure out a new approach to how you were going to get through the day. Yeah, inch by inch. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, big thoughts like that probably didn't happen for yeah. a while. You know, I was just trying to survive. But little, little did you know that you had another bottom waiting, <laughs> waiting for you. <laughs> it was in lurking, the midst, right? So uh, I was sober about twenty months, and I uh, I got a call on my cell phone from um, two investigators from the government. I remember them as FBI agents, but in retrospect, they were probably. Um, from an, another government division. And they told me that I had a, um, there was a warrant out for my arrest in connection with that, that, uh, that, loan. that loan. And um, I, I had no idea. When I tell you I was in complete denial, 
I mean, I had done my, uh, I had done my ninth step, I, my eighth step, my ninth uh -huh. step, and I wrote down everyone who I had harmed and what my wrongs mm -hmm. were, and there were 136 names on that list, and not the government. Huh? Had you made payments on that loan or repaid it? No. No. So you, you even, even setting aside the fact that it was a that a, it was a fraudulent loan, you had defaulted on it as well. Oh yeah, sure. But it still didn't make your ninth your ninth step. I had no idea. <laughs> that's a big blind spot. Yeah, well, I mm -hmm. that's as it right. turns out, that's uh, it's not uncommon. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. Listen, man, I'm not judging. Yeah, I know, I've, I've I know. Done, no. you know, I've, I've done analogous things. Um, so, the, <laughs> so you're like, man, I thought I was, you know, on the on the mend here. Well, it had a 30 year repayment schedule. So uh -huh. I thought I had some crazy, right. I had 30 years to repay it right. or something. I don't really know, uh -huh. but it was, I'm not, I'm not being flip about it. I'm yeah, just telling no, you the truth you. is that yeah. I had no idea whatsoever. Right, so you're like, wait, what, that loan? And um, and were they like get in the back of the Suburban or? No, no, I mean, it, I was uh, certainly conscious enough in that conversation to ask them. I asked them, well, you know, what do you want me to do? Do you, uh -huh. want, you want to come get me or do you want to give me some time to come down? You know, I've been a lawyer for a long time. And they said, um, I had two weeks, you know, I said, I'll go hire a lawyer, I'll come down. And I did. And um, so two weeks later, um, I had to appear at um, the U.S. courthouse at the 500 Pearl Street in Manhattan. And I hadn't been down there since 9-11. Mm -hmm. So when I got down there, it was still like a war zone and with the barricades and the checkpoints and and um, um, and military with um, with uh, you know machine guns and things in front of in front of buildings and I was going into this situation and I, I couldn't have felt worse it was you know like and um, and I knew that my my crime was, you know, having taken advantage of uh, an, an economic benefit relating to 9-11 mm -hmm. and it was searing, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it was, uh, there was nothing I could do. You know, I, I, I wanted, I wanted to get high, but the, there was no way I was going to ever go back. Yeah. And um, so it was the first time I was ever handcuffed and put in a mm -hmm. cell until my arraignment and, uh, and did you plead guilty or did you try to fight this? Um, no, I, I don't remember what happened at my arraignment, to be honest. I just know that I was released without a bond and I had a, um, I would be sentenced at some point in the, in the future. And- um, Were you released on your own recognizance? Yeah. So you could go home before I went sentencing home. and mm -hmm. I got you. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. And then it took two years to get sentenced. Oh, really? Uh -huh. Oh my God. So you have to live with, the looming inevitability that you might be going to jail for two years and, before that reality and and the, and the hope that I wouldn't. Uh -huh. and, and, the, and the reason I went to jail, probably, the reason I went to prison was no judge was not, no judge was gonna give a, 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 a non-confining sentence to someone whose crime was somehow related to 9-11, not in that climate. Mm -hmm. There was, it just couldn't happen. Right, taking advantage of 9-11 exactly. for your own personal gain. Exactly. Like is there anything more reprehensible in a civil yeah. context? And, and, and he said that from during the sentencing, uh -huh. he said that, you know, that uh, uh, at the same time, um, 
because I had been in uh, recovery and had and had uh, done a lot of service and had sponsees and uh, and had 50 letters of, of recommendation and everyone and the room was packed with people from Greenwich um, recovery. Um, he came down as character witnesses. Yeah, he downward he downward departed me, so I had a a, a lower a lesser sentence than I otherwise would have had. Huh. Yeah. So what was the sentence ultimately? Eighteen months. Eighteen months. Yeah. And what What did you What was the sentence? Short of short of all of those character witnesses showing up, what do you think he would have hit you with? Um, it could have been anywhere from twenty one to twenty eight, as I recall, uh -huh. something like that. Yeah. So um, I was. Uh, I wouldn't say I was happy with the 18 months. Uh -huh. I mean, I was uh, expecting something, but um, there was a huge sense of relief uh, that went along with the, with the fear. Like this phase is over. I don't, it had been delayed and delayed and my family was in- Just because in, now you know what you're contending with. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And um, so three or four, uh, three or four months later, no, maybe two months later, I, uh, I had a report to uh, prison, Allenwood Low Security um, Prison out in Pennsylvania. Uh -huh. And I had been told that I was gonna go to, you know, Club Fed to, yeah. a, to a camp where, where white collar guys go. And I had a security level of zero. And read a lot of books, play some tennis. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and I had read, at that point I had read a lot of books on, uh, on, uh, uh, on confinement, and I had read Mandela and Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. and uh, and um, um, Man's Search for Meeting Victor Frankel, right. and a, a lot of things that kind of put me in that headspace where I uh, where Preparing I preparing for this. Yeah, and and because at that point I'd been sober almost four years, there's no doubt that was the biggest influence on, on me in terms of making it part of my recovery. But I found out that I was. Um, designated to a low security prison with bars and controlled movements and and you know walls and dogs and fences and razor wire what happened like no vacancy at the no, at the country club it's exactly what it was on the day i was you didn't designated have any shits that you could uh, call in and i tried from the michael clayton days I, no i tried did you i tried actually i i i, I, I <laughs> you were like i know a guy here's the guy you call no i hired a prison consultant uh -huh. who took money from me there's guys i didn't even know that there was such a thing oh of course yeah it's, uh -huh. a, it's a sub industry for everything right yeah and he took money from me and um, and then did nothing he's supposed to broker this deal a that a, a change of you. designation uh -huh. yeah as it turns out like five years or six years later, there was a, um, a special um, on Dateline or 2020, one of those shows. And he was the subject of, uh, of one of those episodes mm -hmm. where he was uh, wanted for murder. Oh man. So it was- That's dark. Oh, that yeah. is some Michael Clayton shit. You <laughs> well, know what I mean? Like this guy's probably, you know, on the speed dial of a lot of hedge fund managers and guys like that who are in the crosshairs of the feds. Oh, there's a whole story. Right? Yeah, but you know, I, I, I hadn't heard a word about the guy in all those years. And uh -huh. I like pointed at the TV and- Like that's the guy who <laughs> didn't do anything? Yeah, and I, and, and, um, and I don't know if I was remarried at that point, but I said to Lynn, my, I said to Lynn, my wife, I said, uh, that's the guy, you wow. know, that's the guy. You know, uh -huh. and, so no country club for you. No. But still minimum security, but was it filled with like more violent offenders or were they all like sort of white collar financial no, offenders? There were, 
there were 1,500 inmates on that compound. And there were um, five former stockbrokers, two former doctors, one former lawyer, that was me. And the other 1,500 were uh, drug dealers and violent criminals. Mm -hmm. And um, that's just the way it was. That's got to make for an interesting social dynamic. Yeah. I mean, it was nothing I knew about. And back then, it wasn't like uh, it is now, where there's a lot of information out there and on the internet, and, and there's a lot of resources to be able to pull from. And we were alone. I was, I had no information going in. Uh -huh. And um, and I walked in the door, and I was uh, handcuffed and strip-searched, and, uh, and as... Again, another divine moment. Um, my sentencing judge had made a mistake on my report date. So I reported on Easter Sunday. Mm. And um, when we got up there, there was no intake people. I mean, it was Easter Sunday. Right. So I was actually, uh, I was actually um, admitted by the, by the head lieutenant of the entire compound. And he was standing there with a, with a clipboard and looking pretty fierce. And I was naked and he said to me, so you're the lawyer? And I said, no, I used to be. And uh, I didn't know that was exactly the right answer. Uh, you know, I was, I was, there was, there was. Right, it's a test, like, is this guy gonna cause problems for me? Well, yeah, he wanted to know if I was, if I was gonna be making money off other in, inmates uh -huh. and if I was, had a hustle going and I, I, things I knew nothing about, you know, I just, I was, you know, I was just showing up and trying to tell the truth. And what's the day-to-day -day reality in a place like that versus what we might know only from movies or television? Well, if, if you take Orange is the New Black, for example, there's, a, there's an example uh -huh. of, of, a, of a, a, a pretty low security prison. And you take everything that happens there in one episode if you spread that out over a year or two, uh -huh. that's pretty much what happens in a prison. So everything happens, it just happens on a different timeline, a more uh, expansive. Mostly it's people sitting around <laughs> yeah. reading, uh -huh. doing very little, you go to work, you work for three or four hours, you come back. Um, there's not that much drama. Um, you know, you have to I, form alliances for protection. I, you know, maybe if I was younger, at the time I was 48 years old, and maybe if I was a young buck, and um, part of the pecking order, or, or if I was uh, a gang guy or something, it might've been different, but mostly I was left alone. Yeah, left. Mm -hmm. um, but just like if you worked in an, you know, if anybody who works in a sea of cubicles in a, in, in, for some company, you know, it's the humdrum existence, I imagine, you know, I never, yeah. I never did that. But you show up and you do your work, but when something exciting happens, something exciting happens mm -hmm. and in prison, when something exciting happens, it's it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it's dangerous. And I, I saw some things I never thought I would see, like the shanks and the lockdowns. And oh, I mean, yeah. my only point of reference is what I see on the tube. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I I saw I, I saw a, a couple of people um, get killed, mm. and um, it was really really frightening. Um, it was surreal. You know, I, I couldn't really believe what I was seeing. Like I'd never seen people behave that way. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was fast and very, very fast and very violent. 
And you stay sober. I stayed sober. Was Went, there AA? In- there was AA, there was NA, and there were um, classes I had to take because uh, for uh, substance abuse classes. And the AA was remarkable in there because it was mostly inner city guys. And when I first got there, um, because I had four years of sobriety on the street, um, when I got to the AA meeting, there was there were guys who who we went around the room and they and they introduced themselves in their day count or their year count, and there were guys who uh, were reporting that they had three, four, five years of sobriety, but their sentences were longer than that, mm. so they were getting stoned in prison, yeah. and not one person in that room had ever spent one day clean on the street, and um, and they were fascinated. You know, by so that makes you that gives you some stature, I guess, right? Like as somebody who has an experience that they don't have. Well, there was certainly a trade going on. I mean, the trade going on was uh, that you know they taught me how to stay sober in prison, and the the greatest fear they had was going back out on the street and being tempted quickly uh-huh. by women, drugs, whatever. Yeah, because you're no longer in a controlled environment. Right. Oh yeah. Well, this is the first sense of community that most of them have ever had in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't realize even if how much isolation people live in. And this was, the, I mean, people don't really know what it's like in a prison. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, it's a, it's a family in a way. Of the white collar criminals that were in this prison, how many of them were there in some way related directly or indirectly to drugs and alcohol? Like how were their offenses kind of intertwined with drinking and using? Um, I, I think that a hundred percent of them, yeah, okay. but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that they were drug crimes, but you know, but, but just massive party. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And you do the whole 18 months? I did 13 and a half months. 13 and a half, okay. And then I uh, came out to a halfway house and then to a home confinement. And I lived with a friend in uh, Connecticut for a few months until my sentence was over. Uh-huh. And then I started three years of federal probation. And the first wife, when does she split? I was kicked out. Oh, you were kicked out. I was okay. kicked out. When did that happen? That was right. right that was Before right. prison? During oh, prison? Oh, no, no. That was right after I got um, I got arrested. Okay. So that was back in 2004. Yeah. And she, she, for good reason. She uh-huh. was, you know, she was right. Yeah. yeah. What's your relationship with her now? Do you talk to her at all? Or? Yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's civil. Um, it's civil. You know, I, I hurt her. Mm-hmm. I hurt her. I hurt my children. Um, it took a lot of years to uh, reform relationships with my children. How old and, are your kids now? Um, 34 and 30. Uh-huh. And I have three grandchildren and one on the way. And I didn't know if I would ever see them. Yeah. I didn't. But um, things are better now. So you get out of prison. You're in halfway houses, sober living. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how you're going to make your way in the world without being able to do the one thing you know how to do to make a living. Yeah, barred from it, yeah. And, um, but I had a, uh, a drug and alcohol counselor. I was also, uh, also in my sentence, I had to go to one year 
of drug and alcohol counseling after prison. And it just so happens he was a ex-priest who became a ex-Catholic priest who became a drug and alcohol counselor. And he asked me, what are you going to do? And uh, I was a product of recovery. So I said, well, I'm going to go to recovery and I'm going to have sponsees and I'm going to do my thing. And he said- My job is AA. Yeah, my job is AA. And he said to me, well, um, maybe it's a good idea to do some things that you can put on a resume. And that was like a, an aha moment. Uh -huh. And so <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah, resume. I never really uh -huh. had a resume before. So um, I called up Silver Hill um, and um, I told them my story that I'd been to prison and I, I wanna come volunteer there. And they told me to come right over um, because I happened to be in the area. And um, I went over there and I sat down with them and we talked for a while and um, they told me that they wanted me to become a volunteer and they made me fill out a, a um, an application and, and they were gonna do a background check. And um, I wasn't quite sure what the background check was about because I told them everything that, yeah. but of course that's their, their process. And I left there thinking, if I can't get a volunteer job in my own rehab, how am I ever gonna be able to do anything? But I got a call from them two hours later and they, um, and they told me I could start. Mm -hmm. and, and I, 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 I collated paper, I did stapling. Just I did whatever. I did whatever and worked my way through to more and more responsibility there. And where does divinity school enter the picture? Well, um, I was, um, I was uh, volunteering in a couple of different places for a couple of years. And it became clear that I wanted to be in, in a helping profession. And the kind of like when I first started, wanted to be a lawyer, I thought it was a helping profession. I didn't realize that, you know, how much the money would, would subsume all that. And, um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to see a, uh, a pastor at the church and um, I was Jewish at the time. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't think we said that yet. I was, I was, no, I was gonna get to that. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. I know you're like, aware. How does this Jewish guy end up, you know, becoming a reverend? Well, you know, part, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, there's a transformation yeah. that happens, uh -huh. you know, not just in, in recovery, you know, yeah. you know that. I mean, you know, you kind of find God or at least m many people do, I did. But um, in prison, there's no question that I, I was embracing a different, form of theology that I re really understood. And, um, but I hadn't converted. I hadn't been baptized at that point. And so I went to the pastor in the church that Lynn and I were going to. And um, I told him that I, I wanna do something, um, I wanna do something meaningful. And he said, why don't you consider going to seminary? And I had no idea what that meant. I mean, I really, I'm, I'm- I'm a nice Jewish kid from Long Island. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, but I thought a seminary is where monks walked around yeah. with the hoods and all. Uh -huh. And he said, um, no, it's a, it's a progressive seminary and you know, it was a place where you learn about social justice. And that resonated with me. So I applied and I had to write down, um, my, I had to tell my story for the, you know, really for the first time in writing and I had no illusions that I was gonna get admitted to the seminary, yeah. but uh, a little while, it didn't take that long and uh, I got admitted. 
And so to uh, Union, it's U- called Union, Union Theological right. Seminary, and it's uh, in Morningside Heights. Up, uh, it's uh, it's a part of the Columbia right. uh, University family. Yeah, when you were practicing law and using and just you know doing you uh, living the Michael Clayton life, what was your relationship to spirituality then? I was a I was a cultural Jew, not, not certainly not a a religious or an observant one. Uh-huh. But my my you know my daughters had been bat mitzvahed and we showed up uh, to to shul on uh, on uh, high holy days. But um, you know I'd abandoned all of that. I mean, there's no question that once I got into um, into drugs that. Any any shred of spirituality had was Comes eroded. It, it was it was gone. So then, when you find yourself in treatment and in twelve step, you have to you know reconnect with that mm. aspect yeah. of, of who you are. And one of the things that that you know people who are struggling or who are suffering find difficult is is this concept of of God that's kind of packed into. 12 step and yeah. it's alienating for a lot of people. They're like, look, I know I need to get sober. I got to stop drinking or using, but like this whole God business, like it's just not for me. So I'm just going to find another way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it was, you know, it, it wasn't quite a a guy with a white beard, but there's no, I was connecting to the God of my childhood for sure. You know, some omnipotent, omnipresent being um, you know, there, there was an anthropomorphic aspect to it, but uh-huh. certainly I, I was praying. I was on my knees praying to something, and uh, and it was forming. You know, it was forming as I uh, as I kind of went through the next few years. And how did that evolve? Like, what does that look for look like for you now? Um, well, now I I consider myself a, a double belonger. You know, so I'm, I mean, I'm Jewish and I'm Christian, uh-huh. and that was a, a a phrase coined by Paul Knitter, who was uh, one of my professors at Union Theological, who um, who was a Christian and a Buddhist, and you uh, can do that. Yeah, that you know, there's no uh-huh. rules, right? <laughs> Who's giving permission? <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh-huh. and 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 in truth, um, you know, so much of it is about how we live and how we behave and living in right thinking and right action and right intent. And, you know, these are, 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 are Buddhist uh, ideological um, tenets within the, you know, within the, uh, um, uh, the, eight, uh, the Eightfold, the eightfold path, path, and, path and all right. of that, you know, and I didn't know that at the time, mm-hmm. really. I just knew that there was some kind of commonality, but I definitely needed a theology of, of, of looking forward, of transformation and of rebirth. Uh-huh. And I found that in, uh, in Christianity. When you're in divinity school, are you exposed to these different modalities or is it a very Christian oriented? No, this is the most liberal yeah. progressive seminary in uh-huh. the world. I mean, this was, I got introduced to all kinds of things I had never been around. And, and I, I was the, you know, I was the minority there. Because it was uh, the, it was um, feminist and womanist and gay and mm-hmm. transgender and and you know beautiful people all of uh, mostly who came out of some kind of suffering, and uh, and were finding themselves in um, 
in religion and faith and service. And it was this, it was the school of Bonhoeffer and of Niebuhr. Mm-hmm. And um, so it had a, and uh, James Cone and black liberation theology. So it had a very, it was steeped in social in, justice. In social justice. And, uh, but I was the oddball out. I mean, it was, uh, then they were, it was Occupy Wall Street and I was one of the one percenters, uh-huh. you know? I mean, I, you Plus know, you're like twice as old as everyone, um, right? At least, uh, I'm more than twice yeah. as old. But as you as mentioned <laughs> before we were recording that you lived in the dorm. Uh, for a while, <laughs> for a while, no, for a while, I, I was coming down from uh-huh. Greenwich every day and you know, take Metro North down and to 125th Street. Yeah. For a little while, um, we, we took a place in the dorm. Um, mostly because I, I couldn't keep up with the work. I hadn't been, I'd been out of law school for almost 30 years at that point. And I, I just couldn't do the reading. Right. It was massive. Much, I found it much harder than law uh-huh. school, much. Wow. And are you employed at the rehab at this point? Like, do you have any income or how yeah. are you making ends meet? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm up in, uh, well, in that first year, it was probably, it was a little tough. Yeah. But then I was up in Bridgeport and, uh, and I was doing uh, uh, re-entry work uh-huh. And so uh, living in Greenwich and going to school in Manhattan and, and taking the train up to Bridgeport and, right. and, um, and trying to work my way through the issues of, uh, of uh, um, why I was in seminary to begin with, because that wasn't abundantly clear. And for a while I hid my background from everyone because I didn't want to be known as the prison guy. I didn't want that moniker on me. Mm. But at some point I, uh, um, I knew I was having an inauthentic experience if I wasn't actually being honest about what my background was, what was informing my work and informing my papers and things like that. And once I did that, then everything just broke open. Was there, were you blocked out of fear of being judged or what was the impediment to you just owning that aspect of why you were there? I think it was that. Yeah. And and also that um, I was so busy that I, had, um, I, I was going to, uh, very few uh, AA meetings, very. Mm-hmm. And so I was sliding backwards, you know, into a, um, into um, kind of a more selfish, I was in seminary ironically, but feeling yeah. self, more selfish. And, and, um, and the awareness came to me at some point there that it's not about what I get from it, it's what I put into it, mm-hmm. which, I had known from right. from AA, but for some reason, a little just, daily reminder. Exactly, that, and uh, once that you're, happened, you're not in charge. Your, yeah. your self will needs to be sublimated yeah, so, a little bit. So the polarity changed, uh-huh. and um, and uh, I got through it, and uh, and it was a, a beautiful day when we uh, when I graduated, and you know. And where does shame enter into all of this? Like, what is your relationship to that? How to, how have you you know weathered that aspect of your past? Um, it's better now, mostly, but on any given day, I could wake up and 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 the specter is there, you know, just everything. It could be overwhelming, and um, um, certainly service has changed all that. You know, being um, helpful to others and and seeing my and identi- identifying with their stories, and 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 little by little, I was able to move through and, uh, you know, shame, I, you know, shame is, uh, guilt is about what you did and shame is about who you are. And um, I was able to navigate that at some point, but it probably yeah. took a decade. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was, it was hard. Yeah, I find that um, we're 
harder on ourselves than, than others are. And our community is more willing to forgive us than we are willing to forgive ourselves. Oh, that's true. That makes sense. Yeah, and I could see the change manifesting in my friends and the people around me, but I, but I couldn't see the change in myself. Earning trust slowly, yeah, inch yeah. by inch, with yeah. with mm-hmm. your community. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But was that part of not wanting to share your story with your peers in in, in divinity school? I I think so. Uh-huh. You know, I I think so. And, and I, I was but it's so powerful. You know, it's. I mean, everybody loves a redemption story. You know, it's part of why you're sitting here. You know, we, we, we love somebody who's coming back, you know, and, and the ability to kind of own that past and shine a light on it is the ultimate way to, you know, kind of drain it of all its shame power. Well, I was in the middle of it at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like I was, you know, I, I understood it as a story arc. Uh-huh. You know, I was, I was in the midst of it. And, um, and on any given day, it was just overwhelming. Right. And I was just putting one foot in front of the, of the other. Harder than law school. Much harder than yeah, law school. that's interesting. Yeah. Well, so you get out and you find yourself at a church, right? I- um, Become a pastor, a reverend? Like how, how does all that, I don't understand how all well, this Well, the, there was a, um, I had been working in Bridgeport mm-hmm. for a while and, um, and I developed a relationship with a pastor in an all black church, black Baptist church. Uh-huh. And um, I knew I needed an experience. Like full-on Baptist, fire and brimstone, um, choir, like the whole thing? Not Southern Baptist, okay. but, but their own brand. Uh-huh. And I, uh, I went to him and I said, uh, I asked him if, he, if there was a place for me. And I knew him pretty well at that point. And he made a place for me. And uh, uh, Lynn and I were the only white people in the church. And it was uh, full of beautiful, beautiful people. And, um, but uh, waning, you know, like a lot of those urban churches are, you know, um, uh, uh, it was a, um, a, a sanctuary that could fit 600 people probably. And on any given Sunday, there were 40, mm-hmm. 50 maybe. And so it was, uh, it was an awakening as to church polity and church, what it was to work in a church and to actually um, be pastoral and, I was developing a prison ministry at that point, and I was on the preaching rotation and uh, doing all the worship that you know that I'd experienced some of in divinity school, but certainly now it was on the ground and it was happening. Uh-huh. And uh, and when I would preach, um, Lynn, my wife, she would um, she would go outside under the um, overpass and um, speak to the homeless people and ask them if they wanted to come into church and. Um, they would make, she would negotiate with them because they wanted things like a blanket, uh-huh. you know, or, or, or a jacket. They were cold. And uh, she said, come into church and we'll get, we'll get you that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she brought them into the church and they're all sitting in the back row. And she came up to me because I was, I was preaching that day. And she told me that she had, you know, bartered with them. She was making, and she needed blankets and, and coats. And I said to her, where are we gonna get that? This church is poor, this church has nothing but we lived in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. So that's when we started making the rounds of the churches in Greenwich and, and getting resources for the people in Bridgeport. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so how long did, how long did you do that for? Two years. Mm-hmm. And at the same time um, I was doing that, I had um, 
been asked to join the board of, uh, uh, of a uh, criminal justice nonprofit, um, which was an amazing experience because, you know, this was, I, I knew that I, I was, uh, you know, I felt accepted. And so I was a, um, I was a uh, formerly incarcerated person on a board of directors of a, of a major nonprofit in, and I was uh, helping guys in Greenwich through AA who were uh, on their way to prison or coming home from prison. And, and I, that's where I was kind of known as the prison right. guy. And there were, I would say over the 10 years I did that, I don't know, maybe a hundred guys I had helped. And these were captains of industry. I mean, these were, you know, some of them yeah. you read about. This is where I feel like you really find your, 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 your calling, right? You become the go-to guy for somebody in Greenwich <laughs> who got in trouble, who's headed to prison, or somebody who recently got out of prison and is trying to figure out how they're gonna live in the world again. And you're the man with experience. So a lot of you know people knocking on your door for, for advice. And this becomes uh, not just a calling, but you sort of institutionalize this. You start this progressive prison ministries company that's now really the focus of, of what you do, um, trying to be a helping hand to people who have found themselves in your predicament. Well, I got a call from a reporter at a hedge fund magazine. And he and he asked me if I was the minister, was I the minister to hedge funders? Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and yeah. I, I said to, I told him the truth. I said, well, I'm ministering in Bridgeport and I'm working in recovery with hedge funders in, yeah. in Greenwich, but those two concepts have never merged. Uh -huh. And uh, he and said- And one one's more interesting to the press than the other. Oh, one, they, one, one's a little more clickbaity. Oh, they love the white collar stuff. Yeah. yeah. So. And it, it's really interesting what you've done in this world. And we should say like at the outset, there's definitely a sympathy issue here. You're a guy in Greenwich, there's lots of big time money dudes, hedge fund guys, yeah. private equity, investment bankers, you know, all those kinds of people. They get into trouble, they're looking at jail time. You know, it's hard, it's, it's like, you know, okay, so what are we, you know, cry me a river for these guys. Yeah. But I've learned a lot researching you and hearing you speak about the realities of what happens, not just to these individuals, but all the people that are in the wake yeah. of these offenses. Yeah. So walk me through that so we can better understand this whole dynamic. Um, well, just at that point, I, I, I didn't really know what we were gonna do. I didn't understand it other mm -hmm. than I knew that there was a, um, a uh, constituency of people out there who weren't being served at all because I, I hadn't been served. And I knew from my experience in working with them in, in AA. So we, uh, so we went to um, the biggest church in Greenwich and um, who we, we knew the pastor there, we knew the rector. And uh, we said, listen, we have this crazy idea to become a white collar ministry and it's never been done before. And we don't even know if it could work, we have no idea. And he said to us, um, well, it's intriguing, and and um, and I and I explained to him. I believe that there's they're everywhere, especially in a place like Greenwich or Darien or New Canaan, or in, um, um, and they're living in isolation and they're living behind 
closed blinds and their families are affected and they're and and we knew at that point that um they were being asked to leave uh not just social clubs and 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 um and country clubs and things like that but they were asked, being asked to leave their churches and their temples and their synagogues and their kids were being ostracized and um parents wouldn't let their their kids play with the, the children of these families as if they were infected and um, I explained that, and um, what, the, what the rector said to me was, listen, why don't you go do your research, go take this on the road, and see what's out there and come back to me, because I needed institutional support for this to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, for the next year, year and a half, we hit the road, and we preached and hit conferences, and, and um, it was uh, amazing, the response, and the big turning point moment was uh, at the Nantucket Project. So uh, that's why my heart is right. there. You got asked to speak. I got asked to speak. And it. share your story. Yeah, and so it was the first time out of a, uh, a, a room that I would have ever actually told the whole story. Right, in a public forum. And I was scared to death. Uh-huh. I was scared to death. <laughs> and and um, But you'd shared your story a million times in closed groups, right? You'd think it would help. Yeah. You'd think it would be the same, but it wasn't. Huh. It wasn't at all the same. And also, I mean, you know that you, you develop kind of a an AA banter, kind of a, a way of communicating. You know, it's and um, and um, when I got up on the stage, I got brought to my knees. I mean, I was. It was an experience like I'd never had, like a lightning bolt. Um, there was none of the banter. There was none of the pithiness. There was none of the making people laugh a little bit. It was raw. It was raw. I was shaking like a leaf. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke there. Uh, um, well, you, you you spoke there this this past yeah. year. But this you was- spoke, It was like two years ago when you were- when you No, gave that to no me? this is 2013. Oh, oh And I couldn't hear a pin drop. I mean, the the audience was was there was not one there was no feedback whatsoever, and I became aware of that, and I was scared. And um, at the end of it, where I'd finally gotten through the whole story, um, there there was a standing ovation, which I don't remember. I only the only way I knew was from the from the tape afterwards. Uh-huh. And then here was the the pivotal moment because now there's I was on the first night. I was in between Steve Case. And a blind um, boy who sang Christian songs in perfect pitch. Uh-huh. So it was like I was between them of one of five speakers the first night. And the next three days we walked around. And, and Rich, I, I, I'm telling you, 100 people came up and hugged us and thanked us and told us their AA day counts and told us about their relatives and their children who were in rehab and and deaths and and we went back to our hotel room and Lynn and I looked at each other and said, like, what's going on? Like the conversation that people want to have is no one's having it. And somehow we gave them permission to talk about their their frailty and talk about their issues in in a in a in a way outside of, you know, outside of anything we've never experienced other than in an AA room. 
Well, true emotional vulnerability is the ultimate connective tissue. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. and I think when you get up there and you allow yourself to be that raw and unedited and honest, um, people know that. You know, and mm. and it resonates with people, and and it becomes that thing that you're so scared of that ultimately becomes your greatest strength and asset. Oh, it was liberative. Yeah, yeah, and um, and but I. I've, I've, it was a turning point, you know, it was a moment that um, I, I knew that I had to do this. Right. This, this was- this An was, affirmation. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you start helping not only, uh, you know, the underprivileged community in Bridgeport, uh, but also the well-heeled in Greenwich. It's this bizarre dichotomy. Oh my God. Um, and we talked when we talked last. You were kind of sharing with me, you know, some some aspects of of what that's like. And and I read something also that kind of filled in that colored between the lines for me on this, mm -hmm. which is in the underprivileged community, when a member of that community is arrested for, let's say, a drug offense or something mm -hmm. like that, the community congeals around that individual and that family and shows up to support them before, during, and after. In the white collar, well-heeled context, it's quite the opposite. It's immediate ostracization, like you just said, everyone flees, no one wants anyone to anything to do with these people. And you're left with families that are, you know, a shell of what they used to be with um, spouses who are unable to pay the bills, you know, who have mm -hmm. to go on food stamps, like all these things that you don't really think about or consider mm -hmm. um, without any community support yeah. whatsoever. So as much as it's easy to, you know, n not be sympathetic to offenders of this nature, mm -hmm. there is real damage and consequences that extend beyond that individual's bad behavior. Well, also because we're, we've been influenced by the media to paint everyone with this very broad brush, you know, an overwhelming majority of people who are prosecuted for white collar crimes are are not the big name, sensationalized uh, stories that you that you read about in in the paper or you see on uh, on CNBC. I mean, they're kind of just normal people who've um, were desperate. Or, um, or, um, or addicted, or um, had mental health problems, or something went wrong, and they found themselves at that tipping point. And I would say the great commonality of the great commonality is that um, it's mostly guys. So I'll just talk about it as a male thing. Um, that they um, they didn't have the the core character or ego strength to walk into the bedroom and say to their wives, um, look, I'm not the man I thought I was, or I'm not capable of doing the things that we thought I was. So what we should do is we should uh, simplify, you know, sell the house, sell the cars, simplify. And the reason they, they don't do it, and this is reported by maybe 95% of the guys I've worked with, huge number, um, is because they were afraid their wives were gonna leave them. and and mostly because they spent a long time lying and um, not being a partner and and being emotionally distant 
you know, over, you know, overworking and being emotionally distant. And they were afraid that their wives, without the money, that there was nothing left there and their wives were going to leave them. And what we found out as we progressed in this, in this ministry was that most of the wives would have liked nothing better than to have the husband who they married 10 years before to have apologized and just said, you know, this, I've been on this, this train that, that, uh, that left the station and, and I can't do it anymore. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Yeah. Or it's a context in which the water just is brought to a boil at such a slow rate that it's imperceptible what's happening until it's too late. Oh, yeah, it's death by you know what death. I mean? Like I yeah. asked you if you knew uh, Tom Harden, Timber mm-hmm. X, and mm-hmm. you're like, of course. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> he, uh, for a long time, listeners of this podcast, you'll remember that he came on the show, it, it must be four or five years ago at this point, um, infamously known as the most prolific FBI informant in securities fraud history. Sure. A guy who crossed the line, made some trades he shouldn't have made, got a tap on the shoulder, said, get in the back of the <laughs> Suburban. Uh, and was faced with the prospect of prison or becoming a dutiful informant for the government, Mm -hmm. which he was more than happy to do. He fulfilled that role and his work culminated in the arrest and prosecution of like a litany of big time high rollers. Mm -hmm. But he suffered the consequences of being, you know, when he was sentenced, everybody knew there was Tipper X, nobody knew who that was. When he was sentenced, his name became publicly known and that ostracization took place uh, you know, swiftly in mm-hmm. his family. Yeah. And I was able to um, get him on and share his story for the first time, really in a long form public format, mm-hmm. while he was in the midst of grappling with what he was gonna do with his life. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and listen to that, I'll share in the show notes, the, you know, a link to that episode. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of my most favorite episodes mm-hmm. because he's so raw and honest. Yeah. And you can hear, uh, the desperation in his voice and the confusion because he hadn't, he was not figured out at that point what he was gonna do. No, he, he was, was very he, unclear. He, he was new, he was, yeah. he was a newbie. Brand yeah. new. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I shared this story with you and I'm gonna do it here just because I, I don't know that I've ever publicly said this about, I think it was a year ago, I was in New York, I was giving a talk um, at a big investment bank that had brought me out to give a speech mm-hmm. and they usher me into this, theater, uh, amphitheater. And they said, oh, the people that are, you know, there's a little panel going on right now, they're almost done and then you'll go up. And I, they, I opened the door and I looked at the panel and it was Tom Harden on stage sharing his story mm. of what he went through with a group of traders, private equity people, investment bankers, in the hopes of sparing them the pain that he had suffered yeah. and the transgressions. And yeah. I just thought, what a beautiful, incredible, full circle moment to be able to bear witness to that after the experience that I had had with him initially. And I think his experience perfectly encaptures the kind of characters that you're you know, of service to, um, but also a success story and that he's found a way to take this shame and everything that he's gone through and channel it for the betterment of other people. Yeah, I, I, the, the Tom's, definitely involved in the cautionary tale aspect of it and trying to prevent things from happening or people from behaving mm-hmm. in, in ways that are ultimately um, self-destructive. 
because all of this is really about self-sabotage, yeah. you know, just trying to relieve ourselves of some inner demon somehow and people just blow themselves up. Or an up. ego that's so out of check yeah, and you exactly. just can't fathom that you'll ever be caught, that yeah. your experience is gonna be different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what's it like when you're dealing with these families and these individuals? Um, you know, I, what I've learned, what I've learned through this mostly is that um, when I was in AA, I was, uh, I did a lot of 12 step work, a lot of service work. And um, what I've learned is that the, my concept of service has really changed because it's not so much me trying to help anyone. What it is, is radically sharing my journey with them and inviting them into the, the emergence of my own authenticity. And hopefully that gives them the, the, the license and the permission, the agency to do that for themselves. And so there's very little filter right now um, between what I go through and what I experience and what I'm willing to share with anybody who's going through it. And, um, and that could be um, difficult for them because I'm telling them the truth. And, uh, but there's something, it's really about the healing. It's there. And um, because until someone, you know this, until someone practices acceptance and surrender and that kind of, that kind of honesty, they're just not, they're, those lives just aren't gonna get better. Mm-hmm. But to be told from the outset with compassion and empathy and kindness that um, that um, your life has value and that this isn't the end, but what we're going to do here is we're going to we're going to we're going to get real. We're going to get real, and um, that's been uh, and I do that by by being real, mm-hmm. right? By just being an example of that. Mostly provides a space and gives permission for that person to follow in suit, as opposed to look. Here's what you need to do. Here exactly. are the five things. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't work, right? No. But the power in just sharing your experience and owning it a hundred percent gives okay. people a sense of hope that if they can do that, then they can have a transformative experience as well. And that, I mean, that's. Look, we're talking about the work that you do with, uh, you know, the underprivileged community in Bridgehampton, and also this Bridgeport, Bridgeport, Bridgehampton, sorry. Bridgehampton. Yeah, that's even more. That's even more high to, you know. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a bad. There we slip go. There. there we go. Um, very different communities, uh, and Greenwich, right? So, mm. but these are lessons and principles applicable to anybody that yeah. you would counsel through hardship. And, and that's happened because the, uh, there's no question I, that, that we came to the realization that everybody, everybody is going through some kind of difficult life altering experience, whether it be a, a death of a child or cancer or, or a divorce or, uh, or career death or whatever it is. And that these principles are are um, universal mm-hmm. and and that um, uh, we can help a lot of people through. And um, so there's a, there's a few things that we, we, we got to figure out along the way. And that um, 
that the things that we were most afraid of were really probably the things that were best for us. And that um, this transformative moment um, is kind of in the middle. You know, it's a, uh, it's a liminal place where, where um, uh, guys coming home from prison for basically have refugee status. And, yeah, and, it's not the it's not the the end, it's the it's the beginning, really. Yeah, and but there's there's got to be a time period there where you're practicing acceptance and surrender uh-huh. and hopefully no longer mourning the past or anticipating the future, but this is about my 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 development, my 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 healing right now. And where does forgiveness live in this liminal space? That's a hard one, you know, because there's forgiveness and then there's self-forgiveness. And um, I had to overcome a lot of denial to really start to parse out forgiveness. And because I'd hurt a lot of people and I only became aware of the level of people that I hurt by working with so many other men and it became obvious to me about them that they'd hurt people but all of this work is self-reflective so i started to understand that i i hurt i hurt my ex-wife i hurt my wife i hurt my kids i hurt my community i hurt everybody and with that level of of acceptance um and certainly um being involved in a faith community that is about forgiveness. Uh-huh. Um, I started to forgive myself and and felt forgiven. That's a big deal. Is there a difference between acceptance and self forgiveness? Um, like they're pretty close. They're pretty close. Yeah, they're pretty close. I mean, uh, um, ex- for me, it's acceptance of reality. So the reality was where I was living at that, in, in uh-huh. that moment. I mean, it was, there, there was, the fantasy had been broken. Right. But to move to probably higher orders of acceptance and compassion and empathy, those moves took a long time. It took a long time. What do you think is the hardest part of this arc of healing that hamstrings the most people that you work with? that they're, um, we are, are prisoners of our own making. Um, the, you know, it's, it's a strange thing, you know, we're, we're, when, I, when, I, when I started this, the world was very different politically uh-huh. and economically. And, and, um, and then the criminal justice conversation has developed in the last 10 years to the point where it's a, it's a um, it's dinner table conversation. But we've gotten to the point now where, um, where companies and um, and institutions will accept people who've been to prison, and maybe it's driven by I don't know, under four percent unemployment, and they they need the help. I don't know. There's a lot of factors, but the biggest single problem that um, that we have in matching people who've come home to prison. And the, and the jobs, for example, is that the people who come home from prison, including white collar, don't have the ability to um, emerge. They're, 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 they're in these tight 
prison cocoons and they're and they're trapped. And so we can't even get to job interviews. Don't have the yeah. self-awareness of, I mean, the imagine the amount of capacity that is lost of of uh, of tens of thousands of people who uh, have advanced degrees and have so much experience and and they're driving Uber or they're they're working in construction and and so much of that is about the, their own making and can you find the opportunity in the dismantling i mean obviously you know, I would imagine you look back and you have some gratitude for these experiences that Huge. were, you know, on paper quite tragic and mm -hmm. challenging and difficult to navigate, but you now live a life that uh, I would presume is much more fulfilling than the life you were living before. Yeah, I mean, right? I, I, I had no way of knowing. So to be yeah. able to kind of navigate that treacherous landscape from there to here is really the goal. And, you know, when I, when I kind of canvas, when you when you scale up and look at it from 10,000 feet, it's as much a social problem as anything else. Like mm -hmm. we're in a time right now where, you know, we herald the billionaire like we never have before. We put a purported one in office and, and this is the ideal, the manifestation of the American dream. And so we've created institutions that funnel young people into systems that lead them to believe that the billionaire dream is possible for them. Mm. They become perhaps uh, worn out by those systems mm. and then cut corners because they're still adhering to this idea that they could be that person mm. um, and end up on the wrong side of the law with that. But what's driving all of this? You know, it's ego, it's greed, it's our consumerist culture, it's the, it's a, it's a crisis of values and ethics that is fomenting what's beneath all of this, right? And as somebody who now lives in a spiritual place, how do you think about cultural mores and, and how we can raise the collective consciousness of society and culture at large to you know, be a prophylactic against this kind of thing even happening to begin with? Well, that's the big idea. I mean, there's no question that it, it can't be just about being on the road and telling cautionary tales to business school students and uh, and pers prospective lawyers and hoping that one percent of that information will get through. Um, you know, there, there's there's got to be a radical shift. But the things we honor are really strange because you know we might think that we honor the the billionaire, for example, or we, we honor the rich and famous, but underneath it all is, is a, a deep sense of uh, schadenfreude. You know, we're, we're waiting for them to fail. Yeah. We, we want them to fail. And, and um, so there's this, you know, the, you know, the devil's not far from the door. You know, the, there's a sickness involved in it. And, and um, so, you know, we, um, so uh, do we, do we, do we really love Justin Bieber, or do we love the fact that you know he's in the back of a squad car, having been arrested, right. and and um, and I'm I'm involved in you know in the various stages of that with people. Um, it's one of the reasons why um, um, we've um, well for, well first it, first it's the, it's the reason why um, I accepted the job at, at, at Family Rantry. Um, 
um, you know, uh, about three years ago or so, um, I was on the board of directors there. And they asked me to um, become the executive director and CEO of that organization. And um, which ended about three weeks ago. Uh, but um, I would, I was the first person who had been incarcerated for white collar crime in the country to be made the head of a major criminal justice organization. So that's not the first person yeah. who's been to prison. That's the first white collar criminal. And that was a that was a big move. I mean, it was a bold move for the board of directors, but. I, I accepted the job because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be able to say that you know the, we can be trusted, that we can be in positions of respect and authority, and and that we don't have to live in shame, and um, at least that was the theory. Yeah. And uh, um, whether or not I, I, I've helped to move the needle even one degree. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the proof will be in the pudding for that. But the conversation out there has, has certainly shifted. And uh, there was a time when um, um, I couldn't get invited to any parties in Greenwich, for example. I mean, I was a pariah. And, um, and then there was a time where I was a, uh, I was a, um, you know, a, uh, an interesting story. You know, or or you know, I was a, uh, you know, I was the. Um, <laughs> wait, till, wait till you hear what Jeff has to say. Or I was yeah. the, you know, I I, I was the, I, I was the party the, trick. Yeah, the token party trick yeah. for sure. Yeah, but um, I don't feel that way anymore. You know, and 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 um, I'm certainly invited now to things that I wouldn't have been invited to in the past, and uh, and I'm walking erect and with my head held high and. So a lot of other people, so is Tom Harden, you know, this is a perfect example. Yeah. And, um, and because we don't have to live in it. And, and what does this mean um, more broadly in terms of trying to uh, um, change our culture? Well, I mean, we're a culture that at one point in our history, I believe um, um, held basic character issues uh, in high regard. Certainly, um, ethics and, and, and morality were at the center of our university system. I mean, the first colleges in the country were seminaries. And somewhere in the middle of the last century, uh, we abdicated that kind of uh, training to professional schools. And then, for example, the business schools created something called business ethics. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Right. So how do we find our way back? Um, I think it's happening. I think it's happening. I, I, I think that- Do you think it's happening as a reaction? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that people are much more aware and, um, and I think that um, there's, a few, there's a few things going on at once. I think there is a call back into character and, and, and values and, and you just see it even in people's lives. I mean, the uh, 20 years ago, um, um, dads weren't coming home to play soccer, you know, to coach soccer. But now you see a whole, a whole backlash, I think. Uh, backlash is probably the wrong word. But you see a new, a new generation of people who are reinvested in their families in a different way. And um, it's certainly one of the reasons why um, where we've taken on kind of a, uh, what we'll call a ethical rehab approach. 
And um, so it's, uh, it's for people uh, either pre in prevention education or, or in kind of the redemptive process or then in the reunification of families and the restoration of peoples into whatever their new norm is going to be. But um, we're providing kind of the, the services that people would have in a, in a drug and alcohol rehab, uh -huh. but specifically oriented towards um, um, ethical um, issues. So um, an example is, um, you know, Tiger Woods, um, he, he has ethical lapses uh -huh. of his own sort. Right. He gets chased down the driveway yeah. uh, by, his, uh, by his wife <laughs> with the pitching wedge or the uh -huh. nine iron. And uh, he goes to his lawyer's office and, uh, and his, his life is over. And the lawyer says to him, well, you know, go to rehab. And, um, and for, uh, he did for 90 days. And when he came out, um, he was uh, uh, he's someone who'd evidenced a willingness to go through some kind of transformative experience. And I'm not at all interested in, in what his lawyer has to say or anyone's lawyer has to say. I'm interested in the person. I, I, I want to help people actually change and I'd love to do it before there's some kind of precipitating event. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that, that these guys and women, when, they're, when they've been tapped on the shoulder by the FBI or someone else, they are, they're in survival mode. Yeah, it creates a heightened reality that oh. precipitates a willingness that otherwise would not be found. Yeah, and, 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 and they don't even know what kind of sum game they're in at that mm -hmm. point. You know, they don't, they don't know. But yeah, I think, you know, look, Rehab can be this perfunctory stop on the PR rehabilitation trail for yeah. people that find themselves in the crosshairs of some mm -hmm. crisis mm -hmm. of their own making. Um, but every once in a while, it works. You know, we saw it with 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 uh, Michael Phelps. Sure. You know, it's it's effective for certain people. Mm -hmm. Some people they're just doing it to check the box so that you know they'll be ingratiated back into society again only time will tell whether that's real. And the only way to know is to pay attention to people's behavior. Well, you know, at the end of, uh, of many AA meetings, there's a line of people with little white sheets that go up and- oh, Yeah, I was one of those guys. <laughs> I, used to, I used to fraudulently write the signatures on there for the judge. Yeah, well, so, so. so for people who don't <laughs> yeah. know, basically yeah, you, have to, um, you have to document you're going to meetings. So you could tell the judge, yeah. And, and you know, for the rest of us, anything that gets you in the room is fine. I mean, there's a lot of different right. motives to get in the room. We we, we want to help you get well, mm -hmm. and and so so we've taken this to a step that's non-substance abuse related, and it has all kinds of um, co-occurring things. There's mental illness, and there's drug and alcohol, and we're working with different groups and people, and th this will evolve. It's in its infancy. But I think that I think that what we need is a commitment to that, you know, to character and to ethics, and and I certainly search um, continually to become that person I was at twelve years old before I found my, you know, my first joint. Yeah, um, yeah, that's beautifully put, you know, and I think it's needed now more than ever, given that we have, on the one hand this massive and ever expanding opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And we have incredible problems with our, 
prison industrial complex. And these two things are colliding with each other Mm -hmm. to really just exacerbate the problem, making it worse. And you're somebody who, you know, basically was at the intersection of both of these things. Mm -hmm. So when when we look at the opioid crisis, I mean, do you know, are you familiar, as somebody who's been involved in criminal justice reform, like what are those numbers right now? And staggering. Yeah, what are we doing about this and how can we do better? Well, like anything else, uh, the, uh, the the resources w- weren't there until it became a, uh, a finan- there was a, a financial incentive or a political incentive to do it. And now there's a, a lot of resources being thrown at, um, at the opioid crisis, uh-huh. um, the so-called opioid crisis, because uh, not that there isn't one, but it's really no different than the crack academ- uh, um, epidemic that there was. Uh, it just is touching a different uh, strata of society. So um, it's, it, it's a shame that we will, cr- you know, we, we criminalize behavior that affects the inner city people, but we show such, um, such empathy and compassion for a, uh, the same kind of uh, problem, but it's affecting uh, mm-hmm. people in, in the more affluent communities. But, you know, there was, um, um, anywhere we can get, anywhere yeah. we can get the resources, I'll take them, yeah. I'll take them. I mean, it is, but it's also, I mean, you know, look, they call oxy hillbilly heroin. Like it's, you know, very deleterious in a lot of, yeah. uh, you know, underprivileged communities throughout the South, particularly, yeah, sure. you know, in areas mm-hmm. like that. Like it's it's touching all different demographics, sure. I think, from mm-hmm. the guy on, like yourself, the Park Avenue guy who gets the surgery and gets, you know, <laughs> wants the Demerol, down to you know smashing up the oxy pills and mm-hmm. you know being stuck in your basement for six months. I um, um, last year I became the um, volunteer chaplain to the fire department in the little town I live in oh, wow. in, in Connecticut. Uh-huh. And so I had to go through uh, a certain amount of orientation, and so they're talking about the different kinds of calls they go on, they go on fire calls, they go on cat up a tree calls, they go on all kinds of different calls. And one of the calls they go on are um, exploding meth labs. And I'm in this bucolic Right, you're like town. I live in Connecticut. Like, you know, Litchfield Hills, beautiful, exploding, that, that happens here. But, um, you know, in front of the church on the, on the hill are, are crosses with the names of all the kids from the high school who died that year. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's real. And what about our uh, our prison system? We're like right in the wake of this prison, is it in the Bronx that like lost its heat during the- No, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yeah, right. The, yeah. the, the heat went out during yeah. the polar vortex. Like yeah. we got problems here. What's going on there? Well, it's, it's subhuman conditions. I mean, it was subhuman conditions before the heat went out and it was just exacerbated and, it's terrible, and I know a lot of. I do. I wasn't there, but I know uh-huh. a lot of people who were there, who and um, it's terrible, uh, and uh, it's the warehousing of people, and it doesn't make a difference what your what your economic background is. Um, it's it is making money on the backs of other people, and so we live in a culture where uh, criminal justice basically you make fifty thousand dollars roughly per year per person. Mm-hmm. And so just do the math. If we have two point something million people behind bars, that's the size of uh, 
that's the size of the consumer and uh, and someone's gonna make money on it. Yeah, I mean, is there any way out of this privatization scenario that we find ourselves in? Like can, short of changing campaign finance laws and, and how lobbyists work and all of that, I don't see this changing. Too much money's being made. You know, my 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 personal theology is is, is not to you know is to be positive, uh-huh. and I do believe that there's a lot of awareness going on, but I believe that I also know that this is a conversation that's been going on for centuries, yeah. maybe for millennia, and and uh, um, that um, the advocates will advocate, and the people in power, and it's truth to power. And the people in power will probably grant little wins to people so that they're placated. To appease. To appease. And um, they'll find other ways to make the money. We have to wind this down, Mm. but uh, I wanna leave people um, with a place to go and something to think about, particularly people that are listening who, who are suffering, continue to suffer, or know somebody who suffers from a, drug, mm. a, a substance abuse problem. Mm. Um, as somebody with uh, long-term sobriety, who's kind of steeped in the traditions, mm. what do you have to say? What can you, what kind of uh, lifeline can you throw to someone who maybe is wrestling with this privately and has yet to really come to terms with the reality of their situation? Uh, I, I I don't mean it all for it to sound hokey or trite, but there's hope, and I'm I'm not special. I, I'm sure you don't view yourself as special. We've we've been granted grace somehow, and all we had to do is show up every day, and do the work, and live one day at a time, and then um, some higher power decided what our fate was. So if it could work for us it could work for anybody. And I don't take it for granted for a day because the us is today. Tomorrow is gonna have its own, uh, you know, its own issues. And uh, I, I trust I'll be sober tomorrow, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. But if there's anyone out there who, uh, who thinks that it's impossible or thinks they're so desperately in the throes of their addiction or their problems or whatever, and the answer is, just like when I sat at my desk and I had a stack of files or a stack of paper, how do you get through it? And the answer is start at the top. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is about. Just turning myself over or turn anyone turning themselves over to things that they don't know about and that's okay. As dark as the prison of your own design may appear or feel to you, um, I assure you and I promise you that there is a hope just mm. like you said, that mm. there is a light available to mm. you. Uh, and I say that, you know, not to be trite, as you mentioned, but only because I've seen this transpire in thousands of people Man. over the years. People coming from circumstances and situations so dire that it's actually mind blowing mm. the extent to which they've been able to turn their lives around. Yeah. So I implore anybody out there who's listening who has a sense that they may have a problem, please reach out for help. There is help available to you. If you do not wanna drink or use again, you do not have to, but Mm. you've gotta raise your hand. You've gotta make your voice known. Um, 
seek out help in your area. There are plenty of resources. I'll link some of my preferred resources in the show notes to this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and please take advantage of them because you're worth it. And the world needs you to be the best version of who you are, which is sober and conscious. Amen to that. Right on. Yeah. Um, thank you. Oh, thank uh, you. I really, Rich. I appreciate the work that you do. Um, it's beautiful actually. And your story of transformation really is quite wonderful and amazing. So oh, I wish you the best. As is yours, by the way. <laughs> well, maybe I still need to go to divinity school. I don't know. My mother would be happy probably. <laughs> um, if people are uh, desiring to connect with you, where's the best place for them to go online to do that? At prisonist.org. Mm-hmm. So like womenist or feminist, prisonist.org. And all the information's there. And yeah. uh, we have a lot of resources, a lot of content that's uh, valuable. You do like a radio show too. Yeah, we do a radio uh, show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Usually I have, the, uh, I have the headphones on. You do. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Yeah. Cool. Um, thank you. Thank you, Rich. Come back again sometime. Thank you. Bless right, you. Thanks, God Jeff. bless you. Yep. Peace. Yep. Bye. Incredible story. Jeff's an amazing human. Uh, and I think what I take from this is the power of redemption. You know, this is a guy who sank really low, um, almost met his end, and yet has been able to find meaning in his life and to give back and repair the wreckage of his past. And I think there's a lot of lessons in there for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves on on our respective life paths. So do me a favor, let Jeff know directly what you thought of the conversation. You can hit him up on Twitter at Rev Jeff Grant. Also make sure to check out his website, prisonist.org to learn more about his amazing work. And of course, as always, you can check out the show notes at richroll.com on the episode page to dive even deeper. Uh, If you're struggling with your diet, if you're really trying to figure out this nutritious eating thing and you're committed to finally making it work, I implore you check out our Plant Power Meal Planner When you go to meals.richroll.com, you'll get access to thousands of delicious and easy to prepare nutritious recipes customized based on your personal preferences. In addition, you'll get unlimited grocery lists. It integrates with grocery delivery directly in most metropolitan areas. And we have an incredible team of nutrition coaches at the ready to answer all your questions seven days a week. And perhaps the coolest part of this whole thing is it's just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. Super affordable. Literally the price of a cup of coffee. So to learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richworld.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website. If you want to support our work here at the RRP, just tell your friends about the show or your favorite episode. Share it on social media. Take a screen grab. Tag me. Tag hashtag RRP. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, on Google. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Finally, I want to thank everybody, my whole team that helped put on this show today because I certainly don't do it alone. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for filming and editing the podcast for YouTube, as well as putting together all the cool little short clips that we share on social media. Jessica Miranda for graphics, all those cool graphics that we share on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. TK, David Kahn for advertiser relationships and oh, so much more. And 
theme music, as always, by Analemma. Appreciate the support and the love, everybody. See you back here next week with the great comedian, Pete Holmes. Ooh, that's mm. a big one, right? Yeah. Pete's so amazing. I can't wait to share this conversation. He's super cool. In any event, until then, life is an adventure, is it not? And no matter how far down the scale you have gone, know that there is always an upward trajectory available to you. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.